Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then to Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12 this morning as we're going to look at five chapters of Romans. We've got work to do. I don't know if you noticed or not, or maybe it just slipped by because your phone did it automatically, but you missed an hour of sleep last night. I don't know if you knew this this morning, but you're tired. I'm four shots of espresso in, all right? Uh, I'm I'm tired. And and, and yet, I am finding myself this morning knowing, I, I know where we're going this morning. I know what we get to open up to. And I am absolutely energized, and I don't think it's just the espresso, um, I'm anticipating what we get to do today, but I I do also know this. It's going to take work if we're going to make our way through this passage this morning well. We're going to have to lean forward. We're going to have to give attention. We're going to have to do battle with our bodies and put them into place so that we can can lean in together to the word that we have open before us this morning. So I just want to call the church to this and ask Jesus, please, give us your spirit so that we might receive your word and you would do your miraculous work of transformation that you even speak of here in this passage. We are in the Gospel of Romans in a series that we're entitling The the Power of God for Salvation. Uh, We're not very creative around here. We just tend to use Bible words because they tend to be better than what we might make up. Uh, Our prayer for this series is that over the coming years, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation. That he would build for us a foundation for our faith. We know he's always secured for us a a faith, but we would be able to see this foundation that we are standing on as it is unpacked for us in glorious detail in this book, The Power of God for Salvation. We are running so fast through a four-part series that goes through the whole book. This entire letter, Romans 1 through 4, in which we saw the grace that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Romans 5 through 8 then, we, we saw this movement, this interchange between moving from death to life. This is the work of God. This is the effect of the power of God. He can make a dead thing, i.e. me and my sin and weakness, and make me alive in Christ. And in doing so, he has brought me into an even greater reality that we are together 
being brought from death to life. And then we looked just a couple weeks ago in Romans 9 through 11 that there is God's one message for salvation. And this salvation is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, but it is one gospel, one good news. This news of grace alone through faith alone, bringing from death to life applied to all of the redeemed. And today we look at Romans 12 through 16, and we see an appeal in light of this power of God at work in his redeemed people, the church. And so I want to pray. Really, we've already prayed. We've prayed a number of ways. I've even prayed up here asking the Lord for help. Let's go before him together. Heavenly Father, we we continue to pray together. We continue to move through this morning in light of the, the Father who is here, who has gathered us, who's watching his children play, enjoy the peace that you have secured, learning from your word and your ways, growing up in your gospel, enjoying your righteousness. Lord, I pray that in the middle of all these things, it would be so clearly true that any fruit that comes from this good news is because it came from, well, this good news. The fruit that grows up in this church would be on the foundation of our God and his gospel. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we begin, um, we are going to spend most of our time in chapters 12 through 14 and and just a little bit into 15. We'll move quicker and quicker as we go through. It's intentionally an overview of Romans 12 through 16. It's not a systematic theology of, of any one of the subjects that will come up that's covered in these scriptures. We need to, I think we need to hear first the whole of the Scripture in the context of Romans. We need the context of Romans in order to understand any one part of Romans. That's why we're going through so quickly together. So that we then can go back and read each part of this wonderful letter in light of not only the context of Romans, but the context of all of the rest of Scripture. We might have an even more profound understanding of this foundation of our faith. It's for future sermons as we work carefully through these scriptures that we'll consider all the nuances. And and you'll know exactly what I mean as we walk through these chapters. All the times that you say, well, what about? I I just encourage you, write it down. (laughs) Write down your what about. Put it in your notes. Put it in the margin of your Bible. You're going to have some, well, what abouts? But for right now, can we just listen? Can we just hear him speak? Can we hear the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would tell us something? And just like I I want to tell my children, just stop asking questions, just listen. I'm telling you something. And that's the purpose of this morning as we give attention to simply sit in the teaching and receive with it the force within which it was first given. What we'll begin with is an appeal in light of the power of God. And so we go all the way back to the beginning. We actually, this appeal in chapter 12 has its launching point all the way really in the first couple of verses. But I want to go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And if I go back there, I find something profound, a, a true foundation for our faith. I find 
the Apostle Paul saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for this gospel, this good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the revelation that God's power has been leveraged for a purpose. And as we've said repeatedly, if God's power is leveraged for a purpose, let's remember we're talking about God's power. There is none greater. It will be so. I'm not ashamed, Paul says. I'm not ashamed. This is real. This is the most basic reality that if God would leverage his power for a purpose, salvation, there will be salvation. It's an announcement of good news that the Father has sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to make atonement for sin, and atonement there is. That he has sent the Son to secure righteousness for a redeemed people, so those people are righteous. God has leveraged his power for a purpose, and it is so. And the Apostle Paul then spends eight chapters laying out the glory of this good news. And and then in chapters 9 through 11, he traces how the good news has been proclaimed throughout redemption history. And then he unpacks the implications of, of this for a church that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so just note, if we, we come to a difficult passage that you think, well, how do you, how do you maintain unity with a diversity of thoughts and wisdom and discernment and opinions that a, people might have about that particular subject in 12 through 16? Let's remember, we're talking about a people who are as diverse as the Jews steeped in millennia of history and the Gentiles, that they themselves are a very diverse people and with deep convictions in their culture. And yet, the Lord is calling these people to a unity as the church. This Holy Spirit-inspired letter now turns so masterfully to the life of the church that God has made. Hear that again. Paul has established the ground of the gospel. And now he turns, in chapter 12, to describing the fruit of the gospel that grows up from that powerful good soil. This is a fundamental distinction that undergirds so much of the the whole of the existence of Cross Point Coast. Romans 1 through 11 puts on display that the beauty of the gospel declaratives so that we may now, in these last chapters, begin to walk in the gospel imperatives that we are now made free to in Christ. Think about it. If you've been here for a while, you've heard these words at the end of our service. Following the benediction, we say, and the kids know it best, they say it with me, I hear you. You say, and we say together, go and be the church, right? But, as with many of our words, this is actually shorthand. And you hear me say what it actually means at the beginning of the service. What we mean by this exhortation is this. In view of the benediction that we hear week after week, in view of the promise of God to bless us and to keep us in His grace and His peace, go, in light of that reality, go and be the church that God has made us. See, God has done something in his blessing and his keeping, to secure for us grace and peace so that we can now go and not become the church, not go and do the church, 
not grow and fashion the church, but that we would go and be the church that God has made us already. God's made us a church. We are the church by His blessing and keeping. We don't go home and become the church. We go as the church. I mean, it's already true. It's already what He's done. He's leveraged His power for it, and it is so. We don't earn the right to be the church. We don't go with all the right instructions, having learned from a nice sermon and, some, and encouraged by some nice singing to go and make ourselves the church. Christ has made us the church, and so it is. Now we go and walk in what he's secured for us. How about our teaching on community? We talk a lot about community at Cross Point Coast. We, we gather in gospel celebration here as a congregation. We congregate together because the Lord has called us. And he's enabled us to gather by his grace. And then we scatter into gospel communities, but we don't outline a list of behaviors that if we maintain those behaviors in our scattered communities, if we love well enough, if we're patient and we're kind enough, if we're welcoming and hospitable enough, then and only then will we achieve the rank of community, right? And then we can... If we can achieve that rank, then by some labor, some instruction, some effort, we can maintain the status of community. This is not so. We believe that God has already made us a community together in Christ. That's what he's done in redemption. Yes, he saved me. And in saving me, he saved me into a community. This is what Christ has done. This is what the Father has granted to the Son by his redeeming work. We are a people together in Christ. The only question that remains for us was, will we learn to to walk in the community that Christ has already purchased for us? Will we begin to, to bear the name that he has laid upon us? I want you to see this. Christ has not only secured the gospel declarative, the good news that is spoken, He has also secured the gospel imperative for you. Both the ground of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel are by him and through him and to him. To God alone be the glory, right? Now, look at our passage this morning. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The appeal, there is an appeal in this passage, a, a sort of a go and be the church sort of appeal. But that appeal is made with the words, therefore and by the mercies of God. The word therefore tells us that these instructions into which we'll now launch in these coming chapters stand on everything that came before. Don't forget where we came from. And how does he summarize all that came before? Some of you are like, well, I haven't been with you the last few weeks, and I need to catch up and read Romans. Let me just summarize quickly. The mercies of God. By the mercies of God. What mercies? Well, we can actually go to a specific passage, and I would encourage you to go go and turn there. We have it just a second. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, what does mercy look like? It looks like while you were still weak, Christ, at that right time, Christ died 
for the ungodly. It looks like verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What role do you play in that? What behavior, what instruction are we given? What doing do you do? Well, I'm weak. That's me. I'm qualified for that sentence. I am a sinner far short of the glory of God. That's my role in that sentence. And while I was weak and while I was sinner, helpless and guilty, saved by grace through a faith that is itself a gift from God. What follows in our passage this morning is built on the mercies of God, a clear and compelling set of instructions for a life of a church with diverse backgrounds, The church in Rome has diverse maturities, diverse understandings. And the main thing I want you to consider this morning is that the motivation, the the grounding reason for each of the instructions in 12, 13, 14, 15 especially, is actually love. You're going to see it very clearly. Love is the most repeated grounding principle that stands underneath of all of the imperatives of 12, through 16. We shouldn't be surprised by it because it all stands on mercy, doesn't it? He said, by the mercies of God, as the sacrificial, steadfast love of our God stands underneath of the grace that now has purchased for us a way, a better way to live. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through section by section through a set of gospel imperatives. Very quickly, because we're, we're already well into the message and we have barely even begun. And so, what I hope we see is a flow of instruction. Not the details, not the nuances, but a flow of instructions that are given to the church. And it begins right away in verse 3 of chapter 12. You look there with me as we work our way through. And what we see in verse 3 through 8 is humility in light of grace. Look at verse 3 with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. There's a ground upon which every redeemed soul stands. Every single one stands on one singular ground, and that is the ground that is at the foot of the cross. This is what it means to think of yourself with sober judgment. It is to recognize, realize we are weak. It's to recognize that we are the sinners of Romans chapter 5. And it is as these weak sinners who are poor in spirit to which God gives the kingdom of heaven. This is the ground on which we stand at the foot of the cross. It's the sort of humility that, that leverages every good gift for the glory of God and the good of the church. And that's what we have in verses 3 through 8. So we have a people who stand on on the ground of mercy and grace who then are given good gifts as members of one body. And they begin to walk as a people of faith, not of pride, not of great doing, but of great humbling at the foot of the cross. We as a people of faith are, as the Scripture says in verse 5, we are one body with many members. This is an important point that that cannot be reversed. We are not 
many members, and then we get together and function as one body. I literally want you to visualize this. We are one body, one body with many members. Now, that's one image. Now, I want you to briefly, hopefully not too graphically, call to mind a bunch of members and then coming together as one body. Friends, that's not beautiful. That's gross. That is a disembodied set of body parts coalescing into a new thing like a Frankenstein creature. We're not a bunch of individual members who then God says, oh, I could really do something with this. We are a dead thing that he makes into an alive thing. He says, you and you, you're like this member. And you and you, according to the gift of my spirit, are like these members. And you and you are like these members because you are my body over which Christ is the head. Now, What has God done in redeeming each one of us? What he's done is he's transformed you and granted you life in, as a member, in one body. It's essential that that, that's what it means to be redeemed. It's what it means to be saved. It's to be saved into a body. We don't like that in a hyper-individualistic culture. We think that I'm saved. And, And as I see fit and as it kind of works with my nature and my talents and my gift sets and my personality, I may or may not participate with a body. No, if you are redeemed, you are a member of a body or you're not redeemed. This is what it means. The ontological reality of what it means to be redeemed is to be redeemed into one body. It is then as this new body that each of us begin to function as for the good of the whole, and for the glory of the one who has made us one. So it's now, as this one body that Paul's established in these first verses, that Paul begins to move to the love that we share with one another. What does it look like to be this one body with many members? And he gives us Romans 12, 9 through 21. And he says right at the beginning of it, let love be genuine, period. Like, like if you know how to do that, go and be the church, you know? I need help to know what it looks like for love to be genuine. He walks through what genuine love looks like. Verse 9, it's the love the way that the Lord, uh, uh, is the love the way of the Lord in such a way that we see that which is not the way of the Lord as ugly, as abhorrent, even if that was our way prior to his invasive force in our life. It's to love and honor one another, verse 10. Verse 12, it's to serve the Lord with zeal and fervency. That's what genuine love is. It is in verse 12 to rejoice in hope, to be patient in trial, and to pray at all times. That's what genuine love looks like. And in verse 13, it's to provide for and open one's life for the saints. It's called hospitality. This is such an interesting collection of attributes of of love. One might be tempted to think that it's a sort of new table of commandments. All right, church, here's the deal. We're going to be the loving church, Paul says. In Rome, I'm going to teach you how to be the loving church, and now I'm going to give you a set of commandments by which you will show yourselves to be the loving church. That's how we tend to think of ourselves. I've literally been in church plants meetings that have said exactly that. Like, we're not going to be like the church that we came from. We're going to start a new church. 
We're going to be the loving church. And then they go to passages like this, and they set themselves up with a new law. But Paul is not describing a new law. There are two ways in which this is not a new law for the church. First of all, it's not new. What Paul describes here is what stands underneath of the whole law, the whole of the Scriptures. It's not new because it's always been the way of the Lord for his people. It's always been the way of the Lord for his people because it's always been the way of the Lord. And he is their God. He is our head. The way of the Father is to be the way of the children. It's not a new law because it's not new. And secondly, it's not a new law because it's not law. It's not law. Friends, this is culture. This is the way of a family. The law can point to and tutor toward what is good. The law can warn against and even punish what is evil. But no policy and no legislation can fully embody what is meant by genuine love. You want to know what love looks like, don't look for a new law. Look for an ancient steadfast love. He has a name. And if we begin to describe this Lord, if we begin to describe this Jesus, this Messiah who has come, we might describe him like this. Like this genuine love. The way of the Lord throughout the whole of the Old Testament. We see embodied in the way of Jesus Christ, literally embodied, is now to be embodied in his, well, body. In his church, over which he is the head. In verses 9 through 13, we see a personal genuineness of love. And what we see in the next verses is love at work in interpersonal relationships. Ooh, this is going to get hard. It's going to get hard real quick. We see nine circumstances beginning in verse 14 that are the outworking of genuine love in interpersonal relationships, in persecution. He just hits us with the hardest one, right? He says, well, in persecution, bless them. How's that for a personal relationship? In circumstantial highs and lows, rejoice and weep. In the one another's, in the fellowship of the church, harmony. In in the lowly, when you meet the lowly, don't say, oh, yep, found the lowly, sure did. No, don't be haughty. Don't be haughty. Somebody found you, and you know how they found you. Now, when you look at yourself, look at yourself with humility. You know who you are. When wrong, to be honorable. In every circumstance, he says, peace. When presented with the opportunity for vengeance, he says, oh, no, no, no. Vengeance is good, but it belongs to the Lord, not to you. And if you'd done the business with your heart, with humility, you you would have already known that. Rather, give food and drink to your enemy, he says. Bless and do not curse, he closes. Reflecting back all the way to verse 14, doesn't he? There's a simple reality that defines each of these interpersonal relationships. I would suggest to you that we could go on. There are more than nine. There are hundreds of these that we could unpack and Paul could have described for us. Because there is an abiding reality that transforms our interpersonal reactions relationships with one another, and it's this, the presence of God. If God is actually here, 
If the Lord, whose power is leveraged for the salvation of his people, is actually here, is present when his people are persecuted, we are now free to bless and not curse. We do not need to defend ourselves. We do not need to fly into a fit of rage. We do not need to seek vengeance. If the Lord is with us, even in this most difficult of interpersonal relationships, we can go back to Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, I don't know, distress, persecution, maybe, maybe famine. What about nakedness, danger, or sword? If, if the Lord is here, what do we know? No. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's not a past tense love. Yeah, he used to love us. I'm sure he'll love us again someday. He's here. He is the lover of our souls. And if we face persecution, we know he's still our lover. We are still his beloved. This has not ceased. No, not death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A hymn writer writes, For right is right, since God is God. I love that. I want to sing that. David, can you help us out? (laughs) Find that one for us. For right is right, since God is God. And right the day must win. And then we grab right, and we make it ours. And we demand that it must win today. But no, the Lord is present, and he has not brought about that day. I trust him. Again, what do all these have in common? They have the sense that the Lord is near, that if the Lord is present with his people, who will not seek harmony, unity, peace into which the Lord has brought us? If the Lord is present among us, who will not be buoyed with joy and comforted in trial? If the Lord is with us, who is going to puff himself up in pride? When the Lord has redeemed us, and he's redeemed the weak and the sinner. If the Lord dwells in our midst, here's what that same hymn writer writes, thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he's most invisible. God is on the field. He's the one who has called the church to be the called out ones. If the Lord is present, there is a way. We know what it is. Thank you, Paul, for giving us just a couple examples of what it looks like if the Lord is present with his church. It turns out that the marks of the true Christian, as my ESV Bible titles this passage, the marks of the true Christian are the marks of genuine love that are nothing nothing less than the mark of the power of God present in the church, right in the midst of her. Where chapter 12 outlines our response to a love given in the presence of the church and continuing to be manifest in the body and its many members. Chapter 12 takes a turn. And this is a hard one. We're going to move quickly. We'll come back to it eventually. But for now, what we see is what does it look like to have a life in the city, in the society, in the culture? And he begins with the, <laughs> such a difficult teaching. He begins with submission to authority. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Surely this is one of the most clearly evident implications for the church in Rome. 
where authority and power of Rome looms with every ark, every statue, every pillar is a sign of Roman authority. What of the power of God for salvation in, in the face of such flexing of worldly power surrounding the church in Rome? And then we remember that Jesus himself was crucified on a Roman symbol of public shame. Roman justice, Roman power flexed. And that cross has been raised on many Roman hills as a symbol of Rome's power and authority to subjugate. But that same cross now looms large before us today as a symbol of God's power to save. Now you tell me who has authority in Rome. You see, there's a clear instruction regarding obedience to governing authorities in light of the fact that the authorities and the powers in this world are under God's authority and not ours. It's worth noting, just briefly, that the United States has an odd governing arrangement. The elected officials do actually have authority while they are in their duly elected office. And yet, according to our constitutional order that is actually our governance structure, it's also functionally true that these officials, these elected officials, are raised to that position by the consent of the governed. So who has power here? Let me just suggest, before we start unpacking constitutional law, that that arrangement, no matter what you think of it, does not negate a single word of the wisdom of Romans 13. We can do business there, but we would do best to sit down and listen. First, the very existence of our constitutional arrangement is under the sovereign authority of the Lord who establishes every authority on earth. So constitution, sit down under Romans 13. Second, the heartbeat of Romans 13 is not about power. And it's not about politics. The heartbeat of Romans 13 is about faith and peace in the face of the powers of this world. We'll take off our political hats, which we find it so hard to do. If we take off our hats of arguing and disputing over governments and legislatures, we will see the most clear message of the Lord in Romans 13. It's simply this. Our interactions with those in authority must not be marked by, and I would say three things summarize Romans 13, must not be marked by pride, agitation, or contentiousness. The purpose of this teaching's placement in Romans is that the members of the church should seek to avoid such agitations so that the other members of the church who are not participating in such agitation, would not be troubled by governing authorities because of other prideful agitators. In light of genuine love in the previous scripture, if one part of the church begins to curse instead of bless, if one part of the church begins to become haughty in the face of the lowly, if one thinks himself wise or repays evil with evil or takes vengeance into his, whole, into his own hands, will not all of the church in the city suffer? They are, after all, one body. You can say, oh, no, that's just our, that's one guy. He's crazy. No, that's, that's my one body. 
my brother, that's my sister. And they're weak and sinners like me. Will you stop causing trouble for the rest of the church? Oh, Lord, we need wisdom and humility with this one. It's a hard teaching. Surely we would find it easier to understand and believe if we had greater faith, a genuine sense that the Lord whose power is leveraged for our salvation is presently present, really here, that he is acting sovereignly with authority in this moment. Let me suggest that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the disciples were faced with a far greater doubt than you or and I are faced with. God is not here. He's left, and it's all failed. Jesus hanging on that cross. But in that moment, in which that little church of disciples were scattering about, the Lord exercised his power and his authority. He said, no, if there has ever been a moment in history in which I am here, it's when I exercise the power of salvation to secure a church for myself forever. We don't have to be afraid. He's present. He's working. He has authority, and he hasn't given it up to Rome or a constitution or any other work of man. Now, there's two remaining sections of Romans 13. I think that they do go together. Romans 8 through 10 hold out for us a love in a community in Rome. This seems to be a description of a life of community. Verse 8 talks about love one another. That one another phrase isn't like out there in the culture. That's an in here in the church sort of word. It's the second table of the law being worked out in the community of faith. The authority of human government is there to enforce the most human law that is evident to all who are willing to submit to God's natural design for humanity. That Every civilization in history has a sense of the evils of adultery and murder and theft and covetousness that are listed in Romans 13. And even in those, celebra- even in those civilizations that, that celebrate that kind of evil, we have Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. Even the thief who steals is angry when someone steals from him, right? In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. But what the church knows about this law is that it's not a mere legislation against which we strain. It's the summary at the front end and the back end of a passage about love. This is a way in which we walk in the love of the God who is present with us. And then verses 11 through 14. We have what it is to live in the night in light of the coming day. There are powerful words in here. I can't wait to come to, and I hope you'll spend time with them in your coming week. I mean, just look at verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's coming. It's here. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is a description of light as the darkness presses in all around He describes orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. And he says, put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's present. He's here. He's coming. And there's a way to live in the presence of the light 
given the pressing darkness? How do we survive this age of darkness? And friends, we have a gift in the moment in which we live right now. There is a greater sense that the darkness is actually dark. That's a blessing for us to know that the dark is actually dark. And what is needed is not our self-righteousness. Ah, what is needed is light. So love, walk in the light that is Christ in the midst of his church. What follows in, in, in Romans 14 and then a little bit into 15 all the way through verse 3 is a call of what it looks like to, to walk in the midst of a church with a variety of maturities, a variety of backgrounds, what it is to have maturity and unity in a pretty difficult church. Now, it's interesting, in Romans 14, as he's talking about not passing judgment on one another, bearing with the one who is weak in faith, he says, welcoming him, not quarreling over opinions, that, that Romans 14 is actually more restrained than perhaps Galatians or Colossians. If you go read them, Paul has some more harsh, more clear, more pointed words to say. Paul doesn't seem to think that in Rome there is a danger of legalistic Judaizing like Galatians. He doesn't seem to think like in Colossians that there's a danger of Gnostic abandonment of faith. They, they seem to have a faith that, as Paul said in chapter 1, is well known in the whole world. Right? This church is finding a center. Paul seems to be dealing with something that is more a matter of conscience. Maybe something more like Roman, like 1 Corinthians 8, perhaps. Roman, the, the Romans seems to be dealing with the reality of a diversity of maturities in this young church plant. Some are strong, more mature at one point, and yet weak at another. The central instruction of the passage is to welcome one another. Let me ask you this. Does that describe us at all? Some are strong, some are mature, and yet weak at another point? Doesn't that sound something like us? And may it be more so. It would be a tragic reality if all we did was stay mature. That would mean there would be no one who is young in the faith, who has come in by grace through faith into our midst. I pray that we're more, less mature next week because we've grown together. The central instruction of this passage is to welcome one another. Let not, in verse 3 of chapter 13, 14, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. See, the person is welcomed with all the love and hospitality and care, membership as others who are deemed more mature. The immature are fully members of the body because that's what God has done. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? If you think you're mature, take care how you treat the immature. As you would be measured by the thrice holy God. However one would desire to be measured in the final judgment, so judge with the same patience. So judge in light of the same mercy that has been so beautifully built, this grace through faith. 
verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. Not only would we not judge, but we wouldn't lay out a new law as a stumbling block or a hindrance for a brother or a sister in Christ. We who have stumbled over the law of God, have we not? Will we now increase the stumbling with our own self-righteous law? We who have fallen short of the glory of God revealed in the beauty of God's perfect law, would we establish a new law by which we would stand and condemn the immature among us? If a person thought he would defile himself or become an idolater by participation in some food or drink, why cause him to sin by telling him he's immature for thinking like that? So that he might eat in spite of his conscience. Let him grow Preach the gospel and wait. God is present. Do you believe the Spirit works in the heart to whom the word has been preached? Or do you need to go and be the Holy Spirit for the one to whom the word has been preached? Verse 20, I think, is the heart of this chapter. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I mean, how pithy. What a strong statement. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. This brother belongs to the Lord. My sister is the workmanship of our God. What are you doing for the sake of food? There is a mature appropriation of Christian liberty that is good. Verse 22 makes it clear. But the destruction of the conscience of a brother or a sister in Christ is to oppose a work of God. And, and, and how much power? The power of God for salvation. You want to oppose that? And not even Rome could overcome him. I don't want to oppose the work of God. Why do we bear with the weak? Why do we build one another up? Verse 3 of chapter 15, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached him, you fell on me. Because Christ has borne our reproach. Again, if you go back to verse 20, that's so important. It's so important. It isn't merely that we're following the example of Jesus. Well, Jesus did it like this, so I will do it like this. We aren't following merely the example of Jesus. It's that by a failure to do, it is that by failure to do, what we're actually working against the precious work of, of God. So we're not just following his example. We're agreeing that the way of God is good and we would not oppose it. We're saying essentially that God, when we, when we thwart our brother, when we call our brother mature and demand an immediate maturity, we're essentially saying, God, I think you made a mistake with this one. I think your spirit doesn't work fast enough and I don't think your word has power with this one. And I'm going to correct that mistake by being harsh by demanding immediate maturity and agreement with my view of my haughty self-righteousness. Friends, this message is focused on a summary of chapters 12 through 14, maybe a little bit in 15. The chapters 15 move on to a wonderful defense of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, his plan to visit Rome. Chapter 16, and I can't wait to get to it, is just greeting after greeting. I love it. 
I love to imitate those greetings when I visit the church or send a text message to a friend in another place. They're beautiful in their passage that ought not be neglected. But this morning, we have to go to the end of the book. Look at chapter 16, these last words, this doxology. We just close with these three phrases. Now to him. Friends, if there's one thing that we get from Romans, we know him. We know who he is. Now to him. And then we're told, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't only know him. We know what he's done. We know what he's secured. We know his news. And we know that his news brings about the obedience of faith. We know Christ and his gospel not by self-righteousness, but by faith alone. So it is right that this letter ends with, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm reminded of the, the five solas of the Reformation, that according to Scripture, salvation is in Christ. It is by grace, it is through faith, and it is to the glory of God. We've been saved by the power of God. We've been saved by grace through faith. We've been brought from death to life. We've been rescued from slavery to sin and granted the righteousness of Christ. We've been transferred from a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. And so, because of what God has done, this secure foundation, we may, Friends, we may together now walk as the church that God has made us. God, if this would be so, it would be because you, you do it, because you are still present even this morning. I trust that as your word has been opened, we've given attention to your word, that you would faithfully preach your word to hearts, that you would impact, that you would transform, that you would give life. I pray that you would do it this morning. I pray that you would bring the dead to life. I pray that you would bring the mature to maturity and that you would bring the, the immature to maturity and that you would bring the mature to humility. Lord, that all of these things would be your work, not mine, not ourselves, but so clearly yours so it would be to your glory even as we sing and celebrate together. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things. In the name of Jesus, to whom all the glory belongs forever, amen.